Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, and African Americans invented the Broadway musical. This is a changing world, my dear. New songs are sung, new stars appear. Though we grow older year by year, our hearts can still begin. I'm David Armstrong, and my guest again today is Oliver Soden, whose recent book is titled Masquerade, The Lives of Noel Coward. As you may have noticed, I'm devoting more episodes to this book than I've ever devoted to any book before, but I found it to be so exceptional and this conversation to be so captivating that I don't want you to miss any of it. Today, Oliver Soden and I focus on a very difficult period in Coward's career when he seemed to be seriously out of step with post-war Britain. However, during this same period in his personal life, he meets the man who will become his life partner. If you missed the previous episodes in this series, you may want to catch up with those before listening to this one. I want to especially thank our Broadway Nation Patron Club members, such as Larry Spinelli, whose generous support helps make this podcast possible. If you would like to help support the creation of Broadway Nation, I'll have information at the end of the episode about how you too can become a patron. Where are the snows of yesteryear when winter's done and spring is near? No regrets are worth a tear. We're living in a changing world. Here we go. So the next section of your book you call The Desert, and that details a long period of nearly 20 plays, of which only a handful can be considered to be successful even. Yes. Meanwhile, London is falling in love with the new Golden Age-style American musicals like Oklahoma. You wrote that, I think it was in one of his diaries, Coward wrote that he found it to be quite the loveliest of evenings I've ever spent in the theater, deep and abiding theatrical pleasure. Yes. So it's 
interesting that he was, understandably, because he's a man of the theater, he would appreciate this success of that show and what Roger and Hammerstein were able to do with musical theater. But he doesn't seem drawn to try that himself, at least at this period. No, it's interesting that. Interesting that he was much more embracing than might be expected of the new and the young, because he could be sort of an old curmudgeon when he wanted to be. Right. But I think he believed that he, Coward, was the great purveyor of nostalgia. And he got this wrong, but he thought that there would be audience interest in the new, yes, but also in the pre-war or even former century world of operetta. He, he was sort of churning out more bittersweets in a curious way with Pacific 1860, which is really very operetta-like. And then with a musical I barely know, short of the big songs, because it simply hasn't been done again, called Ace of Clubs. Right. And they're not in the vein of the big Broadway musical, particularly not Pacific 1860. They have sort of gypsy melodies and operetta songs for soubrettes and sopranos. And of course, up against Oklahoma, they seemed desperately old-fashioned. And they also, particularly Pacific 1860, are just beginning to have a political angle in that this is the period of British decolonization through the Suez crisis and on. And that is the next generation's social cause in some way. And Coward, till the end of his days, remains pretty much a supporter of the British Empire. And Pacific 1860 is the first of a number of works that he set on this fictional island of Samolo, which entertaining as you might think it could be, is pretty much designed to say that the, in quotes, natives are very happy under British rule. And of course, Coward's portrayal of these natives is so stereotypical and condescending. So it's the start of a great difficult period in his life where he's against the wind, even as he supports the wind, as far as Oklahoma is concerned. But politically, artistically, and sometimes literally, and we'll come on to Las Vegas later, he is sort of standing alone in the desert, trying to be a bastion of pre-war values with limited success. And Mary Martin was the star of Pacific 1860. But you see, a little accident has occurred. An accident? Oh, nothing in the least serious. My horse has cost a shoe, a careless thing to do. Although he has apologized and shown that he is most upset for conduct so uncivilized, I cannot quite forgive him yet. Of course, of course, there is nothing so incautious as a horse. <laughs> My horse has cost a shoe, so I appeal to you. I meet you by a happy chance in this untimely circumstance. Pray tell me what to do. To be able to assist Madame Salvador is an honor that I shan't forget. I will drive you safely home in my father's wagonette. You are so kind, I'll be ever in your debt for your chivalry combined with your father's wagonette. Who could foretell that a most obliging fate would arrange for what befell to befall me just exactly by your gate? Who knows? What magic power guides the hearts of And as you write, 
this was part of this pattern that happened during this period of conflicts during the rehearsal period, numerous yeah. rewrites of these shows, and then indifferent or even hostile reviews, and then very short runs for most of the yeah. shows. Also, we have to remember that Coward is used to these massive, huge budget spectaculars that he'd worked on and that we discussed in earlier episodes, such as Cavalcade or Bittersweet. And now he's dealing with post-war privation. And one of the theatres, I think the Drury Lane Theatre Royal for Pacific 1860, the box office was being lit by candles. Even though the war is over, rationing is going to continue in England for years. And he and um, his great friend Gladys Calthrop, who did all the costumes for a great number of his plays, were really struggling with this new world. And when the reviews painted Coward as washed up, it made him tetchy and nervous. So it meant that whether it was Mary Martin or somebody else, he was very short-tempered in rehearsals. So a lot of these post-war plays are struck through with temper and argument. It's so interesting that deprivation is something we really don't understand in America, how much it affected just every aspect of daily life during this period through the 50s to a great extent. Right through. I mean, I think the last rationing came off in England in the early 60s even. And this is bomb-damaged London. I mean, it's interesting. Coward thought he would offer war-tired audiences an escape, this sunlit island in the Pacific Ocean and so on. But of course, the disparity between a cold London late 1940s Christmas and the sunlit kind of totally irrelevant idyll on the stage with colonial types wondering about pretty insignificant things was so, it was such a chasm that it just didn't lift off. And with Ace of Clubs, which came three years later, which is a sort of, I mean, it, it's coward having a go at Americanisms. There are sailors and gangsters, sort of proto guys and dolls, as far as I can work out. But he didn't know the language, really. It's not his comfort zone. So it, I think it came across as oddly as that. So synthetic. And it feels to me, again, it's hard to know because there's so little tangible about it to touch, but it feels a little bit like it's a 1930s style gangstery nightclub-y world or 1920s even, as opposed to something much more fully fleshed out like Guys and Dolls is. Exactly. Although, of course, I've always argued that one thing that didn't leave Coward over this desert-like period was his talent as a lyricist. What you can do is read the lyrics for these musicals, and some of them... These scores are odd hodgepodges because you have gypsy ballads and you have Viennese waltzes and you have a sort of jazz numbers and so on. So it's a sort of galimofri. But when the lyrics are at their most fizzing and dexterous and witty, they're as superb as anything he did. I mean, there's a wonderful rhyme for Napoleon Bonaparte and sitting on his own apart or something that I think is from Ace of Clubs. So that there's still the dazzle there, but the overall picture he's finding much more problematic some terrific songs in that and a lot of them were then reused later in the reviews of Coward's work they will yes. be familiar to a lot of us the famous one the one I love so much is Sail Away which became the title song of a new musical in its own right but which I think originated in Ace of Clubs yes that's um, right first time round these glimmers of the old inspiration I mean that kind of talent doesn't just wither it just sort of lost its way but the lights are still on in some way I like America I have played around every slappy, happy hunting ground, but I find America okay. I've been about a bit, but I must admit that I didn't know the half of it till I hit the USA. No likely lass in Boston, mass from passion, will recoil. 
In Dallas, Tex, they talk of sex, but only think of oil. In Tennessee, the BBC would blush to hear what's said. In Chicago, Illinois, any girl who meets a boy giggles and shoots him dead. But I like America, its society offers infinite variety and come what may, I shall return someday to the good old USA. of clubs brings Graham Payne back into his life or really for yeah. the first time although they have a strange intersection prior to that but for the rest of his life he will be his primary partner is that fair to say yeah absolutely Graham Payne was South African he was brought up in South Africa and he was working during and after the war as a kind of jobbing handsome actor singer who'd never quite been made a star and there's a also a review only reasonably successful again called Sigh No More which was their first collaboration when Payne was an adult. Oddly, that review in 1932 called Words and Music had had Payne as a child star when he was, I think, in his early teens, if that. So it's a curious relationship in that there is this big age difference, and I don't think it stayed a kind of sexually passionate relationship for all that long. But that actually may have been the reason that it could settle when it began in 45 and then lasted, as you say, until Coward's death in 73, onto a much calmer, more platonic, more companionable plane. And they were sort of life partners, but living in this curious triangle with Cole Leslie, who we've talked about before, who is now working as Coward's assistant and who gets on with Graham Payne terribly well. I don't think it's an amorous menage a trois. The emotional, um, romantic relationship is very much only between Graham and Coward. And yet they were a triangle with Coward very much at the top. So it's a curious domestic setup to try and unpin. And of course, he loved Graham and Graham loved him. But Coward had no hesitation in telling Graham to his face just where the limitations in his Graham's talent were, while always thinking that were it only for a little spur of ambition, Graham could be a star, which Graham later was quite honest about saying was probably a fantasy. So, of course, one of the reasons that Coward's work starts to go off the rails a little bit is that he's forever trying to think of vehicles for Graham Payne to star in. And, of course, if you write so pragmatically, you're probably not letting your comic inspiration have its head. And then, of course, it could be argued that Graham's performances were not keeping the coward plays afloat. I mean, there was a disastrous revival of Tonight at 8.30, which really requires from its lead performer, in this case, Graham Payne, a massive dexterity and virtuosity and range musically and theatrically that he simply did not have, especially in the shining light of Gertrude Lawrence, who came back to star in the revival. So that production really got bad reviews and didn't last very long. It's a curious relationship, but one that brings a lot of domestic contentment for the first time in Coward's life, I think. And you quote Cole Leslie as saying that they were a family, the three of them together formed this, yeah. this family. Yes. Graham had had a pushy stage mother, rather like Coward's, but where Violet Coward was loving, Graham's mother was not. And he rather believed, as I think did Coward, his love for his mother notwithstanding, that water was much thicker than blood. I mean, it's a curious, rather moving flag wave of these often homosexual communities who are not particularly in this case, but who are often estranged from their own families. They're not able to have or even adopt in this period children of their own. And therefore the chosen family 
the loyalty for the emotional family rather than the blood family, who are chosen rather than inherited, becomes all the stronger and tight-knit. And it's not just this trio of Graham and Cole and Coward, but these concentric ripples of the playwright Clemence Dane, the actress Joyce Carey, Gladys Calthrop, the costume designer, and it becomes a real unit. And we're back to what Coward's plays of the 30s were trying to do. It's another alternative design for living whether that's in a gay duo or a trio or a group or whatever it happens to be that is throwing out the idea of the nuclear blood family and any sense that you have a particular tie to people you might be related to even if you don't like them. It's Coward putting the message of his plays into practice, I think, and finding in the 20th century alternative ways to live and love. At the beginning of this relationship, you say that he fell for Graham Payne with a force nobody had seen since the first days of Jack Wilson, or you quote somebody yeah. saying that. Meanwhile, Jack Wilson is having tremendous success on Broadway as the director of Kiss Me Kate and Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. But the relationship with Coward remains to some degree. And even though he's married to Natalia Paley, he's yeah. jealous of Graham Payne. Hugely so. And by this stage, he's also becoming a, a serious alcoholic and was very prematurely aged. His hair went white at a very young age. And it's interesting because I've read some of the correspondence at the time where you can see Coward, possibly because of the geographical distance between the two, because Wilson is in America and Coward at this stage is still in England most of the time and Jamaica in the winter. Coward is still living in his memory in a certain extent and wanting to believe that things are as they always had been and has this sort of helpless love for Jack despite some very obvious things that are going on. And then, as you say, complicated by Jack Wilson's success with the new kind of musical that seems to have put Coward out into the cold. And there's also on the scene the playwright Terence Rattigan who eventually becomes a friend and supporter of Cowards, but initially seemed to be a younger rival. And a lot of Rattigan's plays were produced on Broadway by Jack Wilson with huge success. And Jack would do things as recorded in Cowards diaries, such as interrupt meals that Coward and Graham were having together and clearly be rude about Graham in some way, perhaps possibly not unjustified when it came to his performing ability. But there's a heart-rending diary entry of Cowards where at the end of one of these interruptions from Jack, Coward goes home and he's physically sick in reaction to the stress of what is happening. And things really begin to break apart between Wilson and Coward. I mean, they haven't been a couple in that sense for a long time, but the friendship had endured. But it really begins to fracture and Wilson sort of curdles into this alcoholic old age and premature death. It's sad, really. Let out a fair be a gay thing And when these hours have flown then, without forgetting a happiness that has passed, there'll be no regretting fun that didn't quite last. Let's look on love as a plaything, all these sweet moments we've known mustn't be degraded when the thrill of them has faded. Let's say goodbye. And leave it alone. Don't go away. Oliver and I will be back with more conversation right after this quick break. 
Hi, this is David Armstrong, and even here in Seattle, warmer, sunnier days are on their way. So it's time to fuel up for them and meet your wellness goals with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Thanks to Factors' menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, or my favorite, Vegetarian, Factors' fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart that new healthy routine with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week so you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can crush those wellness goals with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make every day delicious from breakfast to dessert with restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. With no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. With Factor, you enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle, choosing from six menu preferences that help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code BN50 at factormeals.com slash BN50, as in Broadway Nation 50, and you'll get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Do it today. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The storm clouds are riding through a winter sky. Sail away, sail away. When the love light is fading in your sweetheart's eye, sail away, sail away. When you feel your song. Is orchestrated wrong. Why should you prolong your stay? When the wind and the weather blow your dreams sky high, sail away, sail away, sail away. Talk a little bit about what Jamaica and Goldenhurst and Firefly mean to Coward during this period. They're so famous in the sort of Coward lore. And again, I don't yeah. know how much of that was his own publicity or his ability to sort of craft his story in a way that is so romantic. And you understand well, what I'm getting at. Yeah, exactly. The sense of the jet setting playwright, you know, wintering in Jamaica and so on. I mean, he goes first for a holiday to stay in Ian Fleming's house, Golden Eye 
which Coward thought was so uncomfortable, he christened it Golden Eye, Nose and Throat. Um, <laughs> and instantly wants to have a piece of this winter sunshine for himself. And he's very rheumatic at this point. So the winter cold and the grimness of post-war Britain, although he does have a new house on the beach in Kent at this period, is really starting to get into his bones. So a bit of winter sun would be rather nice. Thank you. So he goes off and slowly builds what became two properties to spend the winter there. I think he did quite genuinely adore the escape. I mean, this is the coward who wrote Sail Away and, and sailed away quite literally when things went badly for him, which they, as I say, did begin to do. So it was a genuine escape. And if it was part of his PR, that backfired because he was turning his back on the British people at a time of deprivation. And he who had seemed to exemplify the English character was now spending less and less time in England. And the sort of jet-setting upper crust set where they had once been such interesting fodder for theatrical playwriting before the war and where everybody had seemed so interested in what the rich leisurely set were doing in Mayfair and so on. When they're doing it on Jamaica after the war, it seems increasingly irrelevant to a, a Labour government and the birth of the welfare state. But it is a sort of playpen for Coward. He's rich enough to recreate the Peter Pan world. He can still be a lost boy on Neverland and he can still do upper class bed hopping and he can pretend that the pre-war lifestyle is still going on. It just happens to be a very small group of people with money on Jamaica because Ivan Novello had a house there, Dallas Calthrop had a house, Ian Fleming. So it's a sort of, I mean, we might say as the homophobia in England and America got much more intense than it had been really up till that point. It's a means of living with Graham quite quietly out of the public eye as well. So Jamaica is beloved, but it's a sort of play act as well. I would argue, a sort of play pen, really. Well, and as you said, so much of his life as a performance, his private life as a performance, and this yeah. is another stage to perform on, in a exactly. way, or at least yeah. for his little world. Yeah, I agree. He continues with more of the works that we talked about, Relative Values, another play for the Luntz, Quadrille, which is not a success, yeah. and then another musical, After the Ball. Oh, yes, yes. Which is based on Oscar Wilde, is that right? I, st I could never quite work out why coward beyond a need for money, which he did need in this period with very, very high taxes and not particularly successful productions, because he didn't like Oscar Wilde. And this is a musical adaptation of Lady Windermere's Fan, the Wilde play. It's really a silly idea in the first place, because it interrupts the perfect structure of Wilde's play and the sort of lineup of Wilde's witticisms with songs and dancing, which is an architectural problem. He's not sympathetic to Wilde, who was politically very different to Coward, whose wit actually works in a very, very different way. And Cole Leslie was responsible for quite a lot of the book writing, I think. Coward just works only intermittently on it, and it has an unhappy rehearsal period and so on. But really what you have is the scraping up against one another of Coward's type of humour, because Coward's characters know that they're funny and they wield humour as a shield and as a weapon. Whereas Wilde's characters are in deadly earnest. You can't ever deliver Oscar Wilde's dialogue, tipping the wink to the audience that you know it's funny because it doesn't work like that. They have to be in deadly, deadly earnest. It's the importance of being earnest is in the delivery of Wilde's play, really. So it just didn't quite work. And this is all happening at a time when eventually Coward's tax bill is getting so high and he's in so much debt. He stops being domiciled 
exiled in England and goes to various tax havens, one of the first celebrities to do this, first in Bermuda and then in Switzerland. And he's not able to supervise a lot of rehearsals for the plays in this period, which means he often sort of swooped in to see the show in Dublin for a dress rehearsal and then decided it was awful and threw everything up in the air and redid it at the last minute. So these are not comfortable atmospheres in which Coward's work can really be meticulously put together either. And this is because he's legally restricted from spending a significant amount of time in England. In order to cancel his English domicile, he had to have a whole year living abroad. And from then on, he could only spend a very limited number of days either in America or in the UK. And he's living a rather sort of solitary, unhappy life in Bermuda, where his income tax is so low, and then eventually Switzerland in combination with Jamaica. But it means he can sort of only attend his rehearsals almost in secret. He could only ever see his plays in Dublin. And there's one or two plays he never saw staged at all because of this. Which, as a theatre maker, sounds crazy, because how could you possibly finish the show or put the final touches on which he was so famous for? And this is Coward, the theatrical control freak as well. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. It's hard to rectify how he justified that in his mind, but he had no choice, I guess, or felt he had no choice. Yeah, I think so. In probably the weirdest kind of way, he finds a way out of his economic travails here in Las Vegas. I don't care for China. Japan's far too small. I've rumbled the Rio Grande. I hate Asia Minor. I can't bear Bengal. And I shudder to think of that awful stink on the road to Samarkand. It's really hell, that dreadful smell on the road to Samarkand. But I like America. I have traveled far from Northumberland to Zanzibar, but I find America okay. On the next episode of Broadway Nation, Oliver and I will follow Noel Coward to his triumph in Las Vegas and his unlikely comeback as a film and television star in a music-filled episode that you won't want to miss. Now here's the information about how you too can become a patron of Broadway Nation. A donation of just $7 a month will not only keep Broadway Nation rolling along, it will also provide you with exclusive access to the complete unedited versions of many of the interviews that you hear on this podcast. And all patrons will receive special shout-outs and acknowledgments of your vital support for Broadway Nation. To join, simply go to broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech That's broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech. Or click the link in the show notes to this episode. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. I've roamed the Spanish main, eaten sugar cane, but I never tasted cellophane till I struck the USA. All delegates from southern states are nervy and distraught. In New Orleans, those wrought iron screens are dreadfully overwrought. Beneath each tree in Tennessee, erotic books are read. And when alligator stud through the Mississippi mud, sex rears its ugly head. But I like America, its simplicity, and its passion for publicity. And come what may, I shall return someday to the good old 
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.